0: Today, we have Lane Kawaoka on the show. Do you want to invest in real estate but don't know where to start? Have you wanted to learn from someone who's been through it all and achieved incredible success? Lane shares his story of how he started as an engineer and progressed up the ladder as a seasoned investor. In this episode, Lane shares how he started investing in Seattle in 2009 with one residential property. And now he owns over 4,500 units. How many high net worth individuals are attracted to real estate for the tax advantages and why he likes preferred equity in today's market. Do you want to learn how to save taxes and build wealth with real estate? For a limited time, I'm giving away my five-step process for passively investing in real estate and my comprehensive email course teaching you how to invest in multifamily syndications. Simply go to https colon backslash backslash www.dbprivateequity.com backslash passive income. Yes, you do have to include the entire URL, including the WWW. Now, on the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Lane before we start the show. Lane lives in Hawaii. He started simplepassivecashflow.com to help others achieve success with real estate investing. Lane's been at it since 2009 and has a ton of insight to share with others. He hated his job and he wants to teach others that there's another way. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Lane Kawaoka. Hey, Lane, appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Darren. I love everybody. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other, and then we'll get into it. So um, this is the first time that we're actually talking, uh, but Lane is all over social media. He's got a website, um, very clever name, simplepassivecashflow.com. So I'm sure that attracts a lot of people to uh, to him to get invested. And I'm interested in hearing his experience because he's been doing this for a long, long, long time. So with that, can you share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in?
1: Yeah. So uh, assets under ownership, $1.2 billion, uh, 8,500 rental units, um, which a lot of that was picked up prior to this year since we've kind of. Cooled off on acquisitions with interest rates skyrocketing on us and, you know, kind of, we're kind of focusing on managing the 8,500 units. Um, But yeah, yeah, that's kind of where we're at today. That's the cattle grading system, I guess.
0: It's it's crazy though. 8,500 units, 1.2 billion. And, you know, share with the listeners kind of how you got started. I I believe it was through single family and, uh, but you know, let let me know and let the listeners know how you got started. Yeah,
1: so I guess, like, my story, um, I call it the linear path, you know. So a lot of my myself and my investors, you know, we, we are all kind of taught to be good boys and girls, be good with our money, be frugal. You know, you go to a restaurant and you never order soft drinks because that's the ripoff. And, um, you know, <laughs> you study hard and, you know, I guess I was good at math and science, so I became an engineer <laughs> oh, our, or maybe I was smart and I realized what was the highest paid profession without going to grad school or getting a doctorate. Um, started working for the man in 2007 is when I graduated from the University of Washington. And I was a construction supervisor at the time and I hated my job. And I quickly just tried to find all kinds of ways to get myself out of the rat race. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of what I, I talk about. A lot of these like financial dogma that we're all taught, like buy a house to live in, for example, which I don't necessarily think is a good idea for people who are good with their money. You know, I, I will walk that path, that linear path. And, you know, I, 2009, I bought my first house to live in and then I started to rent it out. And that was kind of where this all started. You know, that's where I got this taste of cash flow
0: 2009. So you bought your first house and then when you decided to move from that house, you ended up renting it.
1: Well, I I mean, I, so it was, this is kind of my unique situation at the time. I was kind of, you know, single in my early twenties. I worked for a construction company and we traveled all over for work. So I had the, the liberty of, you know, being a complete bum and just living off the company dime for four to five years. So you know, I didn't get paid too, too much. I mean, maybe I guess in inflation adjusted might've been multiple six figures, but at that time, it was barely six figures, but I was saving every single dime of that. I had no mortgage. I rarely spent any money on like, you know, anything, you know, other than coming back home on Saturday, which is my only free time, the bar tab, um, that was my only expenses. So all that money went into buying more and more rental properties. The first property again was in Seattle, Washington, where I lived. And then the second was a duplex in Seattle. And this is kind of what I I'm, I talk about in my next book, which is, you know, the phases of rental property ownership well before multifamily or commercial properties come in, you know, most people, they get involved in buying a house where they live in, you know, because they can feel it, touch it, and they they're feel comfortable with it. But in 2012, I realized as the market started to appreciate, and we all thought the, you know, the game was over in 2012 and fast forward 10 years and they're still here. Um, I started to look in elsewhere in more cash flowing markets where the rent to value ratios were better. So I, I bought, you know, grammar properties in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, 1031 exchange, the Seattle properties. And eventually in 2015, I had a portfolio of 11 of these single family homes.
0: So you, when you say linear, it's because that's the, the path that most people take when they're getting into real estate, they start with a single family home then they buy, a residential home to rent out, then maybe go into duplexes and fourplexes, and then grow from there. Is that what yeah. you're
1: referring to? Yeah, and and then you know eventually I think people come to the second stage where they realize you know appreciation is gambling, easy come easy go, especially if they go through some kind of you know micro recession, and then you know they realize they need to invest in secondary and tertiary markets for the cash flow component. So, you know, a lot of the investors, they may start investing in places like Seattle, Hawaii, California, you know, this is just where the high paid jobs are, right? That high up credit investors typically live because right. they're, you know, those are the epicenters for jobs or the high paid jobs, especially. But then, you know, they move off to kind of where I did in 2012, where you're buying rental properties and, you know, these, these lesser known, less sexy markets, um, but then eventually. You know, they get to this third stage of rental property ownership where it's, it's like you realize these rental, these rental properties are kind of a pain in the butt and they're certainly not scalable. Um If anybody wants to, you know, my kind of track record with those rental properties with 11 of them, I had maybe an eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe that happened every quarter, like a tree fall in the house or some kind of rain out in the basement. Um know not a huge deal because I had a professional property manager that kind of babysits my property and you know I think that's what all passive investors should do but you know all this kind of hand-holding the property manager and you know misalignment in how they're paid when you know they have vacancies it's just not scalable and for 11 rentals at a few hundred dollars of cash flow each that's like a measly three thousand dollars a month now in my early 20s that was great beer money and you know that was certainly on the path to leaving my day job
0: right
1: um but i don't know what american family can survive off ten thousand dollars so i mean today we work with mostly accredited investors who really need 15 dollars dollars a month you're just not going to cut it with these rental properties and if you scale to 20 30 rental properties which one could perceivably you know get 10 in their spouse's name 10 in their name with the Fannie Freddie Mac loans. But after that, you just get garbage lending options, portfolio loans with high loans of values bad interest rates, but also it's a pain in the ass managing these rentals, it's not scalable. And then when you start to compile on there, the fact that all those debts in your name, you're, you know, you've, you're high liability. As we joke in our accredited investor circles, can you tell me any good freaking reason why you want to own rental properties? Right. Now, I say that as a credit investor and I don't want to poo-poo any non-accredited investor's mindset because, I mean, I went through that in 2007 to 2012 when I was broke. But, you know, you, everybody gets to a point, and I feel this is very important to move through these stages of wealth building. I call this the journey, the simple passive cash flow. And, you know, this, for for a lot of investors nowadays that I work with, they're already accredited investors in their 40s and 50s they jump over this stuff, but I think it's very important to understand, you know, going through this.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different learning lessons. One was that, you know, early on you saved, you saved money to invest. You know, I think that that's important for listeners that, you know, if you want to get into the game, you need to sacrifice now and put some money aside to get into these deals, you know, or else you're just going to keep on wanting to be in it. And, and you're going to be left behind. Um, secondly, you mentioned kind of the scalability, and I've met a lot of people that have gotten to that same number, kind of 10, 11, 12 single-family properties, and then it just became a full-time job, and they couldn't scale anymore, and that's what led them into kind of the larger multifamily. So I, I think that your, your linear, linear phases um, definitely make sense. The other thing is that you didn't mention this word, but maybe you can share with the listeners, um, you know, forced appreciation, you know? So you you mentioned appreciation in the single family, you know, if your house, if all the neighborhood homes go up, then your home appreciates as well. But with multifamily, there's forced appreciation. So can you talk to that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, up until this point, I was just a mom and Paul. Amateur investor from 2012, 13, 14, even, you know, I was just buying properties, the turnkey rental effectively, and just cash flowing from there. I wasn't doing, I was just getting market appreciation. There's two types of appreciation, market appreciation. And like I was saying, Darren, the the force appreciation, market appreciation is just good damn luck, right? You're buying in a, (laughs) in a, in a right place or. This is like your amateur buddy who buys a place in bay area and for 800 grand and now it's worth 1.2 you know a couple years later what i say to that is well good luck i mean good job buddy that's like easy come easy go and we're starting to see how that kind of tide goes up and down but you know when you start to include force appreciation so when we go into a multifamily apartment we'll change out the flooring new appliances new paint job we're not huge Facelift things, but you know, five to six thousand dollars a rehab into every unit to bump the rents up a couple hundred bucks, which doesn't seem like very much. And it takes a long freaking time because, you know, we're not kicking people out, we're just going through the natural cycle of a tenant. And you know, if you've owned rental properties, you kind of understand that, you know, people typically move out every other year or so on average, some every year, some will stay. And that's, you know, I guess you like to see that. But on average, especially when you're working with larger numbers and you get steady state, 100, 200, 400 units, right? It's, you're, you're going to get that, you know, the more, more stability and the turnout, turnovers. But over time, you know, two to three years, you can get to typically most of the units and, you know, bump your average rents. You know, we, we kind of track it, you know, on a monthly basis the average rents. Sometimes it kind of goes down a little bit because, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of like 20 people. And then, you know, it's vacant for a small portion, but, you know, we wanna see that trend pick up. And, you know, typically maybe $50 every, every quarter or two, you know, it's it's kind of like watching grass grow. But when you look at like two, three years, certainly five years down the road, drastically increase net operating income. And in commercial real estate world, it's these evaluations of what the property is worth is evaluated off a simple formula which is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. So, you know, if you can bump, I mean, people can play get their calculator out. You can bump a building's net operating income by 50 grand, just a measly 50 grand every year. Uh, let me do that. And then it's at a five cap. You just created a million dollars of value right there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's crazy. The other thing is, you know, share with the listeners that it's not really guessing, you know, so like you, you could say a, appreciation. Okay, well, you're just going to buy this apartment building. You're going to put some money into it and you're to, you're hoping that the rents, you could bump the rents. But that's the reality of it is not that you do your homework ahead of time and you look at the surrounding properties and other properties already getting those rents.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we use, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of operators use the same thing. It's a Cold star report. It's uh, the big colomerate data house that apartments.com owns, um, you know, there's a lot of good data that's available to, um, you know, it's a kind of expensive data source, if you ask me, but it's very good data. And, you know, on a one-off basis, it could be wrong. But, you know, when you're comparing multiple apartments and you're just getting general ranges, it's very good data. Of course, you have to verify it with, you know, actual walking into some of the comparables and doing your own rec comps and being sneaky, you know, secret shoppers. But, You know, you can pretty much get, um, a good idea what the product across the street or within the same submarket is going to get to prove your business plan. And this is the complete difference is, you know, venture capital, which is something that I'm kind of looking at personally myself, but I keep coming back to real this type of real estate because unlike venture capital, where you don't know what the hell the revenue is going to be your expenses. This is why I think like, you know, millionaires and billionaires come back to real estate because it's the most easiest like type of business out there. Some don't even consider it a business, but it really is a business. It's just a really simple one. And it's just been time tested over time. Um, you know, aside from the fact that everyone talks about like, you know, they're not making any more land, but it essentially is a commodity that, you know, people need a place to live. And, you know, population is generally growing, certainly in the places that we invest in, like Texas, Alabama, Phoenix, you know, but, you know, this is why like, like one, one case study, uh, one example we've done, you know, we, we went into a deal in Atlanta and, you know, we always underwrite, you know, the certain assumptions that the rents are going to go up 2% every year, maybe two and a half, and, you know, that's kind of takes into account inflation. Right, but doesn't take into account market appreciation like how we we're talking about earlier. When we do the under, we're just assuming for conservative um, force appreciation and we can model that. We kind of know how the rents are gonna tick up over time. And if we sell it this year, it's gonna be this much. And if we sell out this year, it's gonna be this much NOI and, and at the sales price. But you know, that's how we've like, you know, more than exceeded, you know, projections. I think we two and a half X people's money in that in three years. And I like to say that our rehabs were really good and we did an excellent job executing the business plan. But, you know, part of that was market appreciation. And I think you get that when you just uh, assume that your rents are gonna go up just by a modest amount, as opposed to assuming that it's gonna go up four, five, 6% year after year after year, which it has in 2020 to 2021. But, you know, from 2023 onward, I, I just I don't know. I wouldn't be using anything much higher than like two and a half percent, even in super hot markets like a Phoenix, for example.
0: Yeah, and Phoenix has been what fifteen percent, and and now it's got it's got to be slowing down. Somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it like you know these these performers are 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 useless in my opinion. Just like just plug. If anybody's playing with spreadsheets, it's like video games. Like if if I use a fifteen percent annual escalator. I might show a 400% return on investment. If I only show, if I show a modest two and a half percent rent escalator, that 400% goes down to 80%, you know, like it's just, these are like the small minute cells on the spreadsheet that drastically impact, um, you know, your projected returns, and I think most people who are passive investors understand this, right? Who've screwed around with their own retirement calculator, you know, they might use 8%, but if they. You know have some wine while they're doing and they play around what does 13 and a half percent look like it looks like they'll be retiring tomorrow but you know i think that's where you know a lot of this and you know kind of what i teach my folks are like well don't just look at the performer because that doesn't mean jack you know anybody can put any number on this pitch deck and that's what a lot of people do you know it's like dating everybody looks looks like pretty good on their i don't know what people use these days match.com or tinder or whatever but everybody looks good on the profile picture that's why you got to go on the date. But unfortunately, as a past investor, you're unable to do that. But what I tell people is like, at least you can look under the hood. on like, what are the, what are the assumptions used to get to that number? Right.
0: E- exactly. So, I mean, I think that I totally get what you're saying in terms of, of, you know, these are pro formas that never are they accurate that you, you either over, you know, you exceed the returns or you're, you know, under deliver. Um, but they are important to know, you know, going in, you still need to review these pro formas, but then look at the assumptions that, that the, the GP is putting into that investment opportunity. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately, you're not
1: going to get it a lot of times, which is the hard part. You know, it's like, I think a lot of people here are like football fans, you know, it's like all the, the guys on the desk are making their predictions, but you don't know if, the first guy is assuming the running back is gonna have 250 yards. The second guy is assuming that the running back's not even playing. The third guy assumes like the kicker is gonna make six field goals. You know, like we don't know what's going into their their mental model essentially, right? Like it's, it's kind of it's it's hard. It's stacked against passive investors, which is why I always feel like unless you become like an underwriting specialist, with most passive investors are not. You know, you have to just build relationships with purely passive accredited investors and go off track record and experience of other passive investors to verify that.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's hard. It is hard because there's people that over the last five, six, seven years they could have a great track record, and who knows how the, how deals are going to fare. You know, over the next three, four, five years um, under those same circumstances. So, hey, one of the things I read. Um, you know, about you, which was different than a, a lot of, you know, people that I've taught you know, when people talk about like, where do you get funds to invest in these deals? Right. So there's, you know, three big buckets. One is, you know, Hey, if you've socked away money and after-tax savings, you know, there's two, there's, you know, untapped home equity. And then three, there's retirement funds and you know a lot of syndicators that I've talked to that you know they have 20 20 plus 20 30 percent that may invest in the deal using retirement funds I read somewhere that you do not like retirement funds and that you kind of t- advise your clients not to use funds Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and why? We,
1: can, we can dive into this. I mean, it's kind of a complicated thing, right? It's it's very personal based on people's situation. But I find most people investing their retirement funds doesn't make sense. And it kind of goes, gets into, you know, do you want to be, the bad thing about investing retirement funds is you don't get the passive activity losses. You get it, but you can't use the damn thing on your personal tax return, right? And and that for like most of my clients, it's like, that's a big part of this, right? This is the simple passive cash flow trifecta, which is getting better returns outside of Wall Street, but then the taxes for a lot of the high income earners, it's the taxes that are going to move the needle more than doubling their money every five years, which is still great. But the taxes is where they're going to save, you know, multiple five figures a year on taxes. And another thing is infinite banking, but that doesn't move the needle as nearly as much as the deals and taxes so you know if you're investing through a retirement fund you know the, the the way they normally say or the way they trick you into going into the normal 401k garbage mutual funds etc which is where all this nonsense comes from is you know investing in a retirement fund because the growth is tax-free but my argument is well when, you're, when investing in real estate that gives you losses that the growth should be tax-free already so that argument is negated and I think this is what's hard for people right like you know, going, even going back to the guy with one rental property, most people just have one rental property that are in our world. Most people don't have any, I guess. But like, you know, finding real accredited investors and how they're using these tax techniques and how they're building portfolios very, very hard. And it's a lonely world out there for purely passive accredited investors. But these are the kinds of things that we talk about. And these are kind of the counterintuitive things. Like, don't use your retirement account. Take the money out. And my argument would be, The only reason, the only people that should be really considering using retirement accounts, such as Roths, solo 401ks, are people who two things need to be present. They need to make in that highest tax bracket, which next year or 2023 and beyond, $360,000 AGI, married, filed jointly, and they have a significant amount in their retirement accounts. What's a significant count? Well, I don't know the differs for everybody. I would probably call it a quarter million, half a million or more. If it's less than that, it's a pain in the ass. Just withdraw that thing. Cause I mean, that's where I was like, when I finally woke up to this stuff, I was already kind of taking loans for my retirement. I only had like 60 grand in there. I just pulled it out. Cause it was just a pain, but let's walk through this, right? Why, why the $360,000 $360, AGI kind of threshold? Well, if you're making less than that amount, you don't pay that much taxes you probably should just pay your taxes on it today because my whole thought process is you're going to be in a higher tax bracket in the future. Pay your taxes. You're going to have to pay your taxes at some point. Pay the taxes today, get it out of that stuff so you can get access to all these passive losses to do all these other cool things on your taxes today, get the benefit today because of time value of money and et cetera. So do you have a
0: break-even point in terms of if you pull it out you're going to pay a 10% penalty you're going to pay taxes on it but then you're going to have the benefit of the, Yeah well well that the
1: 10 you're you're exactly right the 10% penalty if you're not to age some you know, 60 something or whatever but that's small potatoes guys like if you're if you know if you're making 10% or 8% in your garbage retail stuff and now you can get access to stuff that's 15 maybe 20% plus that 10 is going to be break even in like a six months to 18 months, um, not including any of the tax benefits. So, you know, I think, I mean, that, that just kind of blows that 10% penalty out of the water. And I, I don't like how they call it penalty, right? right? Like
0: you get 10% penalty, but then you're going to also pay tax on it. So say you pull a hundred thousand out, you're going to pay 10% penalty. Let's say you're in the 37% tax bracket. You're going to pay 37 grand in taxes that, that's there, there correct. So now 53000 after tax. Yeah. So the now first that, thing
1: is that 10%, right? So let's move that off the table. The next thing is like what you're talking about. You're going to have to take it as, as income. And you're exactly right. If you're in that higher tax bracket, it may not make sense for you to take it out. But I'm going to walk through these steps one by one, these situations. If you're low, in that lower tax bracket, $360,000 merit jointly or less, you don't pay that much taxes. Just take the damn thing out now. And then because you're in a lower tax bracket now, then you probably will be in the future. And the second thing is like, I I mean, I'm sure we all think the same way here. Taxes are probably going to be going up in the future. It okay? ain't probably going to be staying the same. I mean, where the government entitlement system. And how else do you pay for all these stimulus programs? But I don't get political because I think that's kind of a waste of time. <laughs> but I'm just speculating that taxes will go up. And that's kind of the second point why you take it out now. Now, as you mentioned, right, like it gets a little, now it gets a little complicated and personal, right? And this is where I tell people, well, let's get on the phone. Let's kind of hash out your personal situation as opposed to just listening to a whole bunch of random podcasts about random situations. But if your situation is a higher income earner over that $360,000 HEI level, now we have to kind of scratch our heads and think a little bit um, because, Yeah, you're going to be taking that, that nut punch, right? That 37%, I would probably still argue that it may make sense to, um, you see, here's what I kind of say, it's like my kind of gut working with all my clients is like, it makes sense to get, bring you down to that level, um, or, or maybe just kind of leaving yourself at that, that threshold. So, and this is why we say, if you have, if you're higher than that amount, then it may make sense. But then I would ar- probably argue, well, maybe there's some more exotic tax techniques, such as land conservation easements, oil and gas and other things out there that the hype, the wealthy will do um, because yeah, you could put it into a self-directed IRA and that's what all the self-directed IRA marketers want you to do is put it there into their schemes so they can make um, commissions and, um, you know, assets under management piece with that. but. All I say is like, if you make over $360,000, stop and think about it. At least have a have a discussion with somebody who knows this stuff. Um, unbiased, right? I ain't going to get paid if you do no, like, you know, solo for 1K or self-directed area. I don't care. I'm just going to tell you what I would do. Um, but it may make sense for you to kind of push it, especially maybe you might be, reti- maybe you might be good on this financial independence path and you've been, you know, you've got your network to three, four million and you're going to retire in like four years. Perfect. Let's just, Throw it all into a retirement plan now. And if, and when your income goes down because you're not working your job and your AGI goes down, now we start leaking out $300,000. But then that second component comes in. What if like a lot of people that come to me, they're in their forties and fifties and they've kind of blindly put their money in these retirement accounts, like good little boys and girls, and now they're kind of screwed, but now we have to work through this problem. And that's just what we do in real estate. We work through the problems and they may have a couple million, a million dollars in their retirement accounts, and they're going to be like, oh, shoot, now when we? it's going to take us a while to actually get access get to money right. to get into useful stuff instead of the Wall Street garbage that they're already in. Um, I tell that to them after the fact, you know, after they start working, because if not, I'll offend them. But that's the truth. Right. I think all of us listening kind of know that those are retail products and all those retirement plans kind of like kept you locked up in the cafeteria of all the cafeteria options. And we want to try and get out of that. But. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of situations, right? A lot of different
0: situations. And then, then you have the other situation if you're say you're a syndicator that has excess depreciation that's been allocated to them. So they have carry forward losses. Well, that's a good time to be able to pull money out of retirement because that could cover the tax that you would have paid. Right. You still pay the 10% penalty, but instead of paying the 37% you've got losses that can cover over that.
1: Yeah, I but I, I mean I I'll, I'll just kind of experience share. I mean from myself and even like passive investors who've dumped in more than half a million million dollars into these real estate investments or it, you know, more than like a dozen deals. It always seems like their passive activity losses. I mean go guys, go look if you guys are in like a dozen plus deals, go look at 8582 form you probably are swimming in like a few hundred thousand, maybe half a million plus of losses. Some of the bigger fish out there have a million plus of losses. It 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 really does seem that, you know, you I think people in the beginning, they're like, oh my God, like when these deals double my money, I'm gonna have all this depreciation recapture. I'm gonna pay the tax man. That's not really how it seems to work. I mean, I've been through several of these like, you know, rollovers. And it just seems like you just keep getting more and more of these passive activity losses. Now, I know I was kind of, a lot of that was in the Donald Trump 100% bonus depreciation, but that the bonus depreciation really isn't, doesn't give you too, too, too much more. I mean, it gives you a little bit more, but you know, you still aggressively write off the the deal and, you know, passive investors get that too, that you get to a point where you're just kind of untouchable and you. Kind of realize you stop freaking out about hoarding passive activity losses. I mean, I, I, I mean, case in point, I was like worried about running dry on my passive activity losses at one time too, and I started to do like invest in the pref equity side and some deals just to hoard some K one losses here and there. Um, But then I real I looked at my eighty five eighty two form. I'm like, is there a mistake here? I got like a couple co- couple con laws of like losses, and I'm like, oh, that's gonna be you know, a while since I drained that out. But, you know, I ain't going to get off this, this, uh, we call it the uh, the enhanced wheel. I'm not going to stop investing. You know, I'm going to keep growing my damn money, right? Because this th- these investments, especially like workforce housing, this is the backbone of America, you know, it performs so, well in the recessions. So
0: that's a, a good time to kind of, you said you're not going to stop, but in 2022, you kind of did take a pause. What's your outlook for 2023. I have some people that are saying there's gonna be all these great deals that are gonna be coming in 2023. What's your outlook?
1: Well, yeah, so the interest rates went up and kind of took the wind out of our sales. Um, I quite I quite quite frankly can't make the deals work, right? When my debt service coverage ratio drops down and and I have to pay all this extra money to, you know, pay covering the debt, um, it takes the cash flow away and Some people will make the argument, there was an article the other month of like, you know, going into negative cash flow deals, because you're getting better deals, you know, to some extent, right, it's all individual deals and individual sub markets, but, you know, we've made the decision with 8500 units, we're just gonna, you know, huddle right now and kind of focus on, you know, we keep continuing value adding what we have, and, and kind of just waiting for interest rates to come back to earth, because I do believe it's a temporary thing. I mean, why did this all happen? Because inflation you know, skyrocketed and the Ukraine war and COVID in Japan, not Japan, China exasperated the supply chain, which further exasperated interest rates or inflation. So now you're seeing the Fed pump interest rates up to create unemployment and to kind of slow down the economy so things come back. And we're starting to see signs of that. And I'm kind of seeing signs that there is light at the end of the tunnel which makes me believe that interest rates will probably come back to earth sometime next year. But, you know, I think as an operation group, we're kind of moving away from, you know, the value-add deals a little bit in the long term. To what? Um, you know, just different, being more of like getting on more of the debt side, more secure, prof equity, and, you know, getting more into developments, I think. You know, so, I I mean, where does this comes from? Like, I asked the question, like, five years ago with my passive investor money, where am I going to put it? I like to sure like to invest with some operator who's been around since 2008. The truth is they're not out there guys. Uh, If you you find one, let me know. Uh, But they're probably an institutional operator. So two things happen here. This is just my speculation. And if people have another idea, please, please email me and let me know. But my speculation is once operators get a decent track record, they either move to a different asset class, which is kind of what we, what I mentioned, right? We were going to more of a fund manager role as a pref equity, lower risk, lower return, and we're going into development. Or, you know, some other people I've seen, and I kind of personally know these, these people, so I've watched the pedigree of these people or the trajectory of these people in their companies. They go to different asset classes like office, industrial, more institutional asset classes, because the truth is multifamily is great, and, you know, it's easy to get in, but that's the problem, right? Everybody and their mother is in multifamily real estate. And there's a lot of these like guru groups that gets a bunch of amateurs in it, which is why it's super hard for me who, you know, we've kind of moved past that billion dollar asset mark. You know, even when we went over the half a billion mark, that's where we started to hire employees that kind of had industry knowledge, but there's really isn't stopping somebody from who hates their day job as an accountant or engineer or a doctor of all things. Right. Who has no like business background to get into buying a 100 or 200 unit apartment complex. And when I see that, I want to get the hell out of that industry, just like, you know, I think very similar to like, you see a lot of amateurs buying short-term rentals, right? When, when the. Anybody can just do it. That's the time to get out of that type of thing. So sure. We'll, we'll continue to use our, our capital group and our many our broker connections to stay in this world. But in my opinion, I'd like to get out of this stuff. And one of the reasons is, and I saw the writing on the wall, maybe like four years ago with one of our class C properties. Is like, I just want to stop dealing with freaking tenants. They're very unreliable. I mean. You know when you have 20 percent of your tenants which is kind of typical for a rougher properties, especially in the restabilization period that's just something i just don't want to really worry about anymore and this is why we've moved to more class b over the years i don't think class a the meat is on the bone there but like class b is that sweet spot still but you still run into this like delinquency and like you know now kind of you're seeing all the, like the the rent moratorium evictions kind of finally running through the court systems uh, probably be up by next summertime after going through like a year of that you know the state eating that that beast but again that's why we like the development that's why we like the debt side because we don't have to deal with the freaking tenants right right. the variables
0: now you you mentioned other asset classes I mean office industrial you know if you know you didn't mention retail but you know between office and retail industrial stayed hot but covid definitely had a major impact on both office and retail and there were a lot of institutional players in that in that world and you know on the debt side i've heard people saying that they think that you know some of these large institutional players that have raised really large funds will start to buy assets all all equity, and then wait for the capital markets to, like you you mentioned a number of times, come back to earth. Interest rates come back to earth, and then they re- can refi, you know, at a lower rate and pull capital out and and pay back investors. Um, at that standpoint, so um, it seems like a tall order, but we all know that these institutional funds when they raise the capital. They have these huge funds. They have to do something with it because the clock starts ticking.
1: Yeah, and, and that's how their operators get paid by deploying capital. But they have a huge advantage over somebody like myself because their cost of capital is a lot cheaper than mine. When my investors invest with me, they expect to make pretty damn good returns. When the the big institutions and REITs go buy assets, they are working with like, you know, Lam and pa, a gazillion mom and pals that have zero expectations and that's why they can like they can bid a higher price essentially than I can and that's why I'm sitting on my hands right now (laughs) Uh, but you know I think that's like yeah I think that's you know I I don't want to poo-poo on multifamily real estate you know like you mentioned like industrial stayed pretty well but you know like the thing about industrial is yeah, you know, like you always think like how can this industry get disrupted right or like i mean right now amazon is buying up a lot of this stuff and you know prop it's making the prices you know propped up but what if amazon just decides to like screw these warehouses we don't need it we'll just somehow get these magical drones or you know they, they'll change the game right right and then you're then as you know you're the guy owning fifty thousand square feet it's like oh shoot right like I don't think you're going to, there's a lot lower chance. I mean, there's a little chance of that happening, obviously, but I think there's a lot lower chance of some kind of disruption in like multifamily, especially workforce housing, you know, dudes renting apartments for $700 to $1,200. The
0: the other thing is I I know somebody that is in the industrial space and, and he was like, Darren, man, I'm, you know, you guys are so much better situated in the multifamily space. And I'm like, why? He's like, well, you know, our deals, Typically, are five year contracts with you know rental bumps built in. But if we have true inflation, you know, you can reset the rates annually with the annual leases, and I can't. It's already baked into the contract. So we, you know, we could end up have you know being, a, you know, not being able to push the rents anywhere near uh, the ability that multifamily has.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, to so. On that same spectrum with like, you know, less sticky tenants, it's going with that theme, you know, as I mentioned with the majority of our portfolio, we're kind of staying put and playing more of a defensive strategy or, you know, the debt strategy too. Right. But for a small minority, we're, we're getting involved in hotels now and like something I'm learning that, you know, like we've, we've developed brand new, you know, we just finished our 230 unit in Huntsville and the lease up phase is a year is what you want to project typically. We're kind of for like For a at hotel? 50, uh for for apartments. Fifty okay. percent. We're at fifty percent now, I think like a few months in. So it's we're we're good and I'm sure we'll get it in the summertime. We'll get it filled up. But with hotels, you're hundred percent occupant occupied the day you open, there is no wrap up. And as soon as something changes in the economy or there's something like there's a big event. Your average daily rate is how they measure it. It goes up, skyrockets, right? But at the same time, if there's a pandemic, you're a little bit more exposed, right? But I think, like, I guess what I'm realizing as as an operator and passive investor is, you know, it's good to be diversified into these different asset classes. Multi-family is great. The cons are everybody and their mother does it, and they bid each other up, and it's very incestuous. But, you know, I can't really fathom some kind of market disruption where the demand just tanks. Right. Uh, Sure, they can overbuild that stuff, but I don't really, you can see that coming, right? You can can look at your coal star report, what inventory is coming online in the area. But I think, you know, it's good to diversify in different asset classes. And the common theme is like you're providing utility to kind of human needs, right? Their basic needs.
0: So you've kind of grown through the different processes or different phases, as you mentioned. Um, what are kind of some of the learning lessons that you've, you've learned as you've gained that, that knowledge? I mean, you started out with a single family and then you've continued to scale, you know, how did, do, how does that knowledge play out for you over the years?
1: One uh, of Big lessons learned is like, I'm just a guy, I'm just a little entrepreneur. I'm an engineer, but like, I'm not, I don't have industry knowledge of being a property manager for decades. So, which is why after a half a billion, we started to hire um, professionals to kind of do what we were doing, right? Um, and become more of a professional private equity company and emulate the large guys, but keep that small town feeling and you know direct to passive investor. Um, but the biggest thing overall is like, and I don't know if it's a lesson, but like, you never know who's reliable. Yeah. Everybody's kind of a fake it till you make it person until you, you get into bed with them. Um, and this is kind of why I tell passive investors, like really the only people you can trust are other passive investors that have, that aren't going to get paid some stupid referral fee or just spewing off like, oh yeah, this person is good, but when you come to find out that referral source hasn't invested with anybody or let alone the person they're referring. Um, it's, this is what makes this really hard and the private fund, the private equity space is verifying track record and experience. But once you do, you start to realize it's a small world. And, you know, once you start to grow your, your colleagues and investors, um, contacts, you start to realize that the very small world and you stop, you stop taking chances with a bunch of random strangers out there um you know i've i've lost some money and gone through ups and downs and deals with you know people we don't work with again um, and but and i look back and you know although at, at the time i didn't have the network that i have now to make sure that doesn't happen or you know do a real reference check um, I, you know, and what I see as a real reference checks is somebody like I personally know we're bros and my bro knows the track record experience because he's invested with somebody or done business with them. That's what I'm talking about. Gold standard. And then that's why I say, you know, you know maybe it's not a nothing I could have done at the time. It's just kind of what you, what people have to do. They have to lose money a little bit in the beginning, but you know, now people bring me deals all the time and I'm like, well, who is this joker? Have you, where'd you find this, right? Like right. everybody just goes on Upworks and finds the same, you know, VA to make some pitch deck, whatever, uh, who makes a PDF in their mother's basement. You know, it's, this is real estate. It's market, it's all marketing, shadow games. Until you can find people to verify track record experience, you don't have anything.
0: That's a, it's a great point. I mean, um, you know, I've had people contact me on Instagram and say, Hey, do you wanna help raise capital for this deal? I'm like, I don't even know you, man. If like next time you're in Dallas, let's get together for coffee. I don't even know who you yeah. are or what you've done. Um absolutely. So <laughs> hey, uh, what do you like to do for fun outside of work?
1: I don't know, Darren, man. Like I You just I work, that's with, it? Man. I just you're, I just roll. Come on. I, I have a young kid now. Uh, how old? Like uh I guess by the time this era, maybe a couple of years <laughs> old. So my time is kind of filled up with this, that, and I'm realizing like, wow, like no wonder all the investors are in their forties because they have kids in their thirties and then just nothing happens. <laughs> just, all focus goes to this, uh, which is why, thank goodness, I started investing prior to having kids or getting Good married. Good for you,
0: man. And you live in a really tough place to live, right? Where do
1: you live? Uh, Hawaii. 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 Right. So when there's like snow Violins and and all these things, I'm I'm not worried about that type of stuff. But uh, but yeah, you know that's that's something I struggle with. You know, I mean, like, it just kind of work all the time, and you know, we're still trying to get that business where I'm totally hands off, we have like the C-suite is kind of outsourced, or not outsourced, but hired out. Um, but you know, I still like to, you know, interact with the investors, and you know, we we one of my big things was like, you know, create a boutique company where people know each other. You know, like like uh, you know, I'm from Hawaii. Everybody is kind of knows each other. It's like family. It's ohana, right? Or you East Coast guys, it's kind of like Cheers, right? Everybody knows their freaking name. Right. You know that that was kind of the vision that I wanted, and to invest with a cohesive group that. You know, if distributions aren't made, they understand, they, they get it. They, they understand what happens. And we know, they know that we have their backs and we're acting as a fiduciary. And oh, by the way, the other nine deals that they're in, um, are doing doing swell, right? Like, I mean, like most deals go really well. I mean, I would say maybe 10% of the deals, it takes a while to get it back on the rails, but you know, you never lost investor capital and I plan not to do that. I'm doing everything in my power to avoid that. But like, I mean, this is in every investment, there's risk. And that's, I think that's where trust comes into this, you know?
0: Right. So 8,500 units, what's the next big stretch goal?
1: Um, I don't know. I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't really do that number count. Like my, my marketing team, says you need to get to a certain number, but. I just tell them they, they gotta just work with what they got. But I don't know, man. I mean, I'm just trying to just guide guide what we have to a safe landing. And then if we get some more, we get some more. I mean, I guess, I, th- I think like my my goal is like, I would rather not, I would rather get off the train of like setting the expectation that we're gonna do all this value add and go through all the headache and and turmoil of dealing with tenants and, you know, Doing the more heavy medium value add and you know maybe we don't double investors money in five years like i would rather get on the side where it's just more on the debt side more secure something where like people can like feel comfortable putting a larger amount of their net worth because the truth is like like for new new investors i mean i i see what they're doing i mean they're just putting in a small manini bar we say that in Hawaii is like Insignificant portion of their net worth, 5%, whoop-de-doo, dude, this ain't freaking magic. Even if you double your money in five years on 5%, that ain't going to change your life. Now I get it. You're trying to get proof of concept in the beginning, but I would rather create the product where you, you feel comfortable because it's backed by a hard asset. You're just getting monthly payments that sold the whole idea, simple passive cash flow. When we started this whole concept mailbox money, something you can rely on. And the principle is safe that, you know, if you can hit 12%, 10%, you know, reliably with a good sharp ratio, then why not take that all day long, right? Like, I mean, this is what I, I we teach on the consulting side is you know, if people can get your net worth to four or $5 million net worth and an easy 4% rate, you're FI. Now double that or triple that with 10, 12%. And now you're, you now you're living like a king at 4 mil. Right. And that that's I think that's where like most of my investors, it's not about the investments, but it's about tying the taxes and the infinite banking together and really optimizing what this is. You don't need to be do doing these outlandish like developments or like venture capital. You don't need to do that. You just need to have the majority of your money making above double digits or ten percent. And you're cool. And that builds long lasting legacy wealth, especially if you're already a frugal person already. Right. Um, most of my and, investors have ran,
0: you're getting the tax benefits, right? So I,
1: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, most of my investors have ran 37 miles at a 27 mile long marathon. It's ridiculous. But I think that's where, and maybe that's, that kind of stems from me here. Why, why do I have no freaking hobbies? Why do I <laughs> like keep doing this? Right. I mean, it's just no different than my investors, right? Like, The reason we we got to this point is because we were frugal with their money. We knew value and we worked hard, but the problem is you never know which day is your last and you know, until you have a death in the family, a near death experience, maybe some people do mushrooms or go to a psychologist or whatever, you don't start actually enjoying what you have until you lose it or something like that happens. And you know, you know, if people have a million dollars net worth, you know, you could probably cash that thing at six figures and quit your day job. People won't do that, but you could.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. People, people won't do that. And, and I also agree with what you said before about, um, you know, people will test out, you know, this whole, you know, first of all, it takes a long time to get somebody to agree to, to part with any of their capital to, to try something new because it's scary. They haven't done it before. But when they do decide, they typically are taking a small portion of their net worth. And then it could be a three, four, five-year hold before they end up proving the concept. And they had all their capital sitting in a you know low return um, elsewhere. So in any event, hey, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, they can um, hit me up, uh, email lane at, at cashflow.com. Um, check out my podcast, Passive Real Estate Investing via Simple Passive Cash Flow, and yeah, you know, I think I I live the same this path as you, direct Right? We're, we've got this this stuff works, and people come and drink from the drink from the river, I guess, hes analogy. But like a lot of people don't take that jump, right? And I think I think what it is is like it's the community. It's you know that's why we do events, right? Like I think in, in a couple of weeks, we're doing the annual Hawaii retreat, right. For our investors, And I always feel like that was a big thing for me back in 2015, right. If going back to my story, like in 2015, I was just picking up single family home rentals. I just, I mean, I did live in my mom's basement, but essentially I kind of just all by myself and I just didn't talk to anybody. Right. As people say in Japan, like Hikimori, hikimori just played video games. Even though I did play video games, I just <laughs> read about real estate and and look for deals, but like, I just kept to myself. And I think that's a lot of people do, especially post COVID. Everybody's just like loners. And it's super important, especially when your net worth becomes a million dollars or greater is you got to get your ass out there and you got to meet people to verify where you can put your money, more importantly, who you're going to stay away from. If not, you're just going to get the garbage on the on the crowdfunding websites, put up at broker dealers for making the cut on that.
0: Yeah. That, I mean, that's huge. and, and- also, those people that have, you know, are in your your world um, that are not in your surrounding network that can, you know, kind of show you the way and and teach you because um, if you're the you know have the highest net worth of your your little network, then you're not going to learn anything from those people. You know, they're going to learn from you, but the, you got to get out there and meet other people. And I've had plenty plenty, plenty, plenty of people that have taught me, um, Hey, you got to read this book. You got to, you know, look into uh, infinite. You mentioned infinite banking like three times, you know, like I didn't know anything about infinite banking, you know, and I set up a plan like three years ago and, and, you know, but I would not have known anything about it if I didn't get around other people, you know? Um, so, well, I appreciate you coming on. Um, definitely look this guy up. He lives in a very cool place and, (laughs) And he started from humble beginnings and it just, you know, it's the telltale story of, you know, invest in real estate and wait because you invested in real estate and then you start compounding it and you take those gains and you roll it into other properties. And next thing you know, this guy's got $1.2 billion in assets under management. So, uh, Lane, again, appreciate you coming on. Listeners, Till next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.